0: Romans 15 we are given this assurance that the nature of God's word stems from the very nature of God himself our God is the God of all comfort therefore his word gives us comfort that we might endure in hope as we wait for the Lord Jesus to return no wonder then that God calls us to pay careful attention to his word because there is comfort in close reading to see you here this morning, and uh, if you could keep your Bibles open at that passage from Matthew's Gospel, or your phones, uh, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, um, I'm sure you have it on your phone. Uh, We're going to work through uh, this passage together. A few few years ago, uh, the way I used to like to talk about preaching is that uh, on Sunday, you want a Sunday roast, a good lamb roast, and the preaching should reflect that. Until someone pointed out to me that um, a preacher ought to be a shepherd of God's people, and having a lamb roast when you're a shepherd probably isn't the best move. A banquet, a feast, uh, every Sunday morning. Uh, This morning, uh, uh, we're going to be looking uh, at quite a bit. There's such richness in this passage, and uh, I don't want you to be afraid of that uh, uh, or scared off, uh, but it is worth knowing uh, this is a three-course meal this morning. Uh, So uh, let me lead us in prayer again. Ken's already prayed, uh, but let me pray again, and uh, we can get stuck into this passage together. Father in heaven, uh, we give you great thanks and praise for your word. Your word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. Your word is life. We thank you for your spirit who caused the prophets and the apostles to write your word, that we might behold Jesus. And we thank you for your spirit who removes that veil, that we might see him and be transformed into his likeness. And so this morning, as we consider Jesus as our Christ, as our King, we pray that we would behold him. And the greater he would be in our sight, and that we would be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, in whose name we pray. Amen. Friends, this morning I want us to take us through three things, and the first really is to ask, what does it actually mean for Jesus to be the Christ? What does it mean for Jesus to be king? Uh, the second uh, thing that I'd like us to think through is that the king sets the pattern for the people of the kingdom. What does it mean for Jesus to be king? And what, does the pattern, what is the pattern that he sets for the people in the kingdom And then thirdly, drawing that together, that the pattern of our life is first suffering, then glory. First suffering, then glory. If you ask someone today what a king is, uh, we may have a little bit of difficulty thinking about what kings are. We know that the kings of the ancient world were a bit different from what kings and queens are like today. We have constitutional monarchs. They might rule, but their rulership is heavily uh, circumscribed sorry about that, Um, uh, by law, by acts of parliament, and really they are heads of state, ceremonial, and they exert very little direct rule. Not so in the ancient world. Uh, It's been a momentous week in the Newling household because this week, after 20 years of graduating from my ancient history degree, I finally found out what professional uh, work you can get if you do an ancient history degree. It's taken me 20 years to find out what it is uh, after having said I just did an arts degree. Um, no, I did an arts degree, and apparently it can get you something. Heritage consultants, it doesn't matter that you studied ancient Egypt at university, you can be a heritage consultant uh, in our country with an ancient history degree, there you go. Uh, but there is a value uh, beyond uh, the professional life of the ancient world, and that is it helps flesh out and contextualize the very scriptures that give us life. In the ancient world, kings, did far more than simply rule in an abstract way. They ruled directly. And there are two things in particular that kings did. They went before the people to win victory on their behalf. Representative, if you like. They went before the people to win victory on their behalf. And secondly, they provided justice, righteousness for the people. Victory and justice, righteousness. You see it in uh, the ancient uh, Egyptian... uh, Uh, sarcophagi and uh, the images of their pharaohs, they hold two things. There's the crook and there's the flail. They administer victory. They win the battle with the flail, but they also have the shepherd's crook to exercise justice amongst their people. Victory, justice. And that's exactly what the Israelites asked for in 1 Samuel chapter 8. 3,000 years ago, when they asked God for a king, they asked for a king like the nations, now, the issue there wasn't uh, that they wanted to be like the nations because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God said you can ask for a king like the nations. What does a king like the nations do? Go before us to win our battles and to judge us. Victory, justice. The, the problem that the Israelites had was that they wanted to choose for themselves what kind of king. And God gave them the kind of king that they would choose for themselves, Saul. But when God chooses for himself a king... David, that is the very thing that David does. The story of David and Goliath. What is it that David does that Saul doesn't do? He goes before the people to fight the enemy on the nation's behalf. He wins the victory over Goliath on the nation's behalf. He acts as king, and then he provides justice and righteousness for the people the complete reverse kind of story in David's life, the sin with Bathsheba, how does it actually begin? That summer, David did not lead the armies into battle, but stayed home in Jerusalem. That is, the beginning of his downfall didn't come when he looked out over the balcony and saw a naked woman bathing. It actually came before that, when he refused to act as king, to go before the people to win the battle, but rather stayed home instead. A king goes before to win victory. A king provides justice and peace. And that's exactly what God used to do before the kings came. He is the one in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire who went before the Israelites. The Ark of the Covenant, symbolic of God's presence, went before the Israelites into battle. And he is the one who, through Moses, gave the law to provide justice. Victory, justice. And when Zechariah promises the Christ, when Zechariah promises the king to come, he enters Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, having salvation and righteousness. What does it mean for Jesus to be Christ or Messiah? It means he is God's promised king. God's promised king who would go before the people as their representative and win victory. He would go before the people and win the battle and provide justice and peace for his people. Imagine Peter's shock then. Verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. What kind of a king is a king of a kingdom where he goes before them to suffer and to die rather than to live and bring life and salvation? Well, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Verse 22, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And those chilling words, the complete reverse of what we heard last week and which we just had read from us. Jesus turns to Peter, get behind me, Satan. See, what kind of king is Jesus? What does it mean for him to be king? He must bring victory He must bring justice. But what kind of enemy is he battling such that he would need to die and rise again to achieve that victory? What kind of battle is he fighting that he would need to die and rise again in order to win victory? Well, it's nothing other than a battle against the spiritual authorities in this world. And by his death, he disarms the rulers and the authorities. The justice that he provides comes through his death and resurrection as he deals with the guilt, the power, and the penalty of sin. What kind of king, what kind of enemy do we have? What kind of struggle are we against that our king would need to die and rise again in order to win victory and bring justice? The rulers and authorities... Evil one and our sin, its guilt, its power, its penalty. These things, however, are only spiritually discerned. They are the things of God, verse 23, not the things of men. What does it mean for Jesus to be king? Victory, salvation, justice, righteousness. But what kind of enemy? the evil one, the guilt, power and penalty of sin. Brothers and sisters, this morning expand your mind and therefore expand your hearts and affections to your king because he has gone before us to win a victory we could not win, to provide a righteousness that we could not provide. He has defeated the evil one and he has saved us from the guilt, power, and penalty of sin. Praise God, then, that he didn't listen to Peter. The rock on which he would build his church, verse uh, verse 23, has become a stumbling block instead, a temptation to do otherwise. Praise God for our Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't end there, because as we grow in our understanding of what it means for Jesus to be king, so we understand that this king sets the pattern for those who are in the kingdom. Look at me at verse 24. He says to his disciples, if anyone, not just some, not just the apostles, not just the early church, not just for some Christians, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me a prelude, a prefiguring of the kind of death that he would die. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Well, hang on a minute. Isn't a king supposed to go out and win the victory so that we don't have to? Why do we have to have the same experience as the king does? Cast your minds back to that battle between David and Goliath again. David goes before the people, he wins the victory... But there's still a battle that happens afterwards. He disarms the ruler, he disarms the authority, but there is still a battle to be fought. The victory is assured, the army is routed, but there's still a battle to be fought. And as Jesus comes to this point in his ministry and he changes tack and asks his disciples more and more to reflect on what it means for him to be the Christ and what it means for him to follow, what it means for his people to follow the Christ, his use of the language of son of man begins to make sense as he uses the language of Daniel chapter 7. And as we had that reading read out to us, did you notice that the, that the enemy was defeated, but that the enemy was allowed to continue for a while? Jesus has won the victory. There is a nowness to the kingdom. It has happened, and yet there is a not yetness too. Things have not yet been brought to their final completion. And so as with the king, so with the people of the kingdom. As with the master, so with the servant. If they treated the king in this way, if the king lived this way, then so with his people. Whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. As with the king, so with the people of the kingdom in this age. Jesus was saved not from death, but through death and then into resurrection life. And so with the people of his kingdom. The people of his kingdom are not saved from death in one sense. They're saved through death into life in the resurrection kingdom. I am the resurrection and the life, said the Lord Jesus, even though he die, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. What does it mean for Jesus to be king? Victor, the one who gives righteousness. But this king sets the pattern for the kingdom. Just as he was rejected and then rose from the dead, so we understand the nature of our life in this age. And that pattern is first suffering, then glory. First suffering, then glory. Friends, let me ask you, what do you expect of the Christian life? Our Lord Jesus Christ told us to take stock. And this morning, I want you and I want me, I want each of us to take stock and ask, what is it that we expect of this life? What is it that we expect as followers of the King? A few years ago, uh, Emma and I were at a church that didn't have an evening church, and so what we do sometimes is visit other churches just to see what they were like and uh, get a different experience, different wisdom on things. And uh, we went to a uh, particular church, uh, I'll call it St. Temptings, uh, of, uh, very close to home. And, um, and uh, at St. Temptings, um, uh, during uh, the giving uh, part of uh, the uh, church service, Um, the uh, service leader gave a message that was almost as long as the sermon, um, uh, but his message uh, came from Mark chapter 10. And this is what he said. He read from Mark chapter 10. And he said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, and in the age to come, eternal life. Give, that you may get back a hundredfold, was the message. He read from Mark chapter 10, but he actually left out one phrase. This is why it's good to know your Bibles, because it's easy to miss the phrase that's left out. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. The desire for prosperity. The desire for physical health. The desire for sinless perfection. The desire for an immediacy in the presence of God. They're all great desires, aren't they? Who doesn't want to be physically healthy? Who doesn't want to prosper rather than suffer? Who doesn't want to experience the presence of God and closeness who doesn't want to leave sin behind and be perfect these are all great desires but we must get the timing right those things belong to the age to come We might have tastes of them now. Those who live the Christian life as a general rule, I'm not saying it's a universal rule, as a general rule, they tend to sort their lives out. They tend to be physically healthier. They tend to, uh, because they're diligent in work and there is a truth behind the Protestant work ethic in the history of the West, things get done um, when people become Christians. And uh, we have a taste of the presence of God now, don't we, with the Holy Spirit within us. And we can make real progress on uh, sin in our life. But those things belong to the age to come. It's only in the age to come that we will dwell directly in the presence of God, see him face to face. It's only in the age to come that sin and everything that uh, is the consequence of sin is done away with completely. It's only in the age to come that the suffering of the fall uh, with work of our hands and our bodies of decay and corruption will be done away with. But to promise those things now in this life It's a great temptation, but it is a terrible lie. It is nothing other than, as Jesus says to Peter, that kind of thinking about the kingdom is of the evil one. Brothers and sisters, understand the pattern that the king sets for us. In this now-but-not-yet time where we're in the kingdom, but things have not yet been completed... What are our expectations to follow this king? It is first suffering, then glory. Luke chapter 24, verse 19, the resurrected Lord Jesus says to his disciples, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is the expectation of the Old Testament. Thus it is written, that it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter his glory. Glory. And just in case we missed it, 20 verses later, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day enter into his glory. Or again, 1 Peter, he didn't understand it here in Matthew chapter 16, but gee, he got it later on. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, the Old Covenant, Old Testament prophets, they prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when the Spirit of Christ predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. First suffering, then glory. And of us, the Apostle Paul says, that if we have the Spirit within us, then the Spirit bears witness that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. What is your expectation for the Christian life? What is your expectation as you follow a king? A king who wins victory a king who wins justice and righteousness by dying and rising again, by suffering and then entering glory. If our expectation is anything other than first suffering, then glory for this life, we have misunderstood the king that we follow and we have misunderstood the age in which we live. There is a hope, there is a promise, of great glory. Can you imagine the day when we dwell in the presence of God face to face? There is no sun needed in that new creation because the light of the Lamb gives its light. Can you imagine the day when that inveterate sin that we keep struggling against is just persistent in our life, when we no longer struggle against it? Can you imagine the day when there are no more tears, no more mourning, No more crying or weeping. Because sin and everything that makes for sin, the ailments of the flesh, our physical suffering, our struggle in this world, our toil that produces thorns and thistles and pain, all of that is gone. What a day that will be when we ourselves are transformed, raised in resurrected glory, to share in the glory of the Son, to share that kingdom with him, to enjoy all of the blessings that he has. What a day that will be. And it's that hope that spurs and motivates us in the present as we understand the character of this life. And it's that hope of the future, rather than expecting it in the present, that enables us to take up our cross and follow our King. What will that look like for you? I can't prescribe it, because God gives us each different situations in life. But as we've already heard this morning, that's one of the great things about our Bible study groups, isn't it? where we can share and reflect and pray and apply these things into our lives. Where we meet pastorally with one another, face to face, individually and in small groups and pray about these things together. I can't prescribe it, but I can model it and I can illustrate it. Forgive me for a moment then for talking about ourselves for a few minutes. What does a life look like where one is willing to take up one's cross and undergo hardship for the sake of the kingdom? For us this year, it meant doing ourselves out of a ministry. Not to close the ministry down at Watson's Bay, but to see it merge with four clues that the ministry might flourish all the more. The last act that we needed to do was to resign. We had to do that with no expectation of what's next and we still have no expectation of what's next. We have no idea. Our funding runs out at the end of this year, which is not too far away, and we have no idea what's next. At that point, we could have said, tenure, rectors have tenure, hold on. Do the duty of the parish for the next few years, except that would have seen it run down We'd brought it to a point of great spiritual renewal, but it needed help to go forward. We could have put ourselves in the way, but God calls us to take up our cross and follow him. What's the point of trying to save our lives when if we do that, we'll just lose it? When we search for ease in this world, pleasure in this world, stability and security in this world, but rather those who lose his life for Jesus' sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his very soul? It's easy to say those things, but occasionally God will put things in our paths that will test the genuineness of our faith in those things. Do we live for self or do we live for others? Now, I'm not raising these things about the Newlings as a sub-story or anything like that, and yes, it is hard, it is difficult, and some of you know a little bit about it and have asked great questions and have been praying for us and we're very thankful for that. But I raise it for you merely as an example, as a model, to be willing to let go of the self, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. Let me conclude with a man named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott. Or actually, I'll actually conclude with his wife. But anyway, uh, Jim Elliot. Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, Jim Elliot, uh, in October 28, 1949, wrote these words in his diary. He said, "He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose." Has anyone heard that quote before? Yeah, a few people. Um, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Less than six and a half years later, Jimmy Elliott was dead, killed by the very people group in Ecuador that he was trying to share the gospel with. There is a man who understood what it means to give that he might gain what he cannot lose, but not just him, but so many others. Through his work and the work of the others that were killed with him, inroads were made into that people group. But here's the real kicker to the story. As famous as Jim Elliot was, and that quote is, it's actually his wife. Two years later, she took her two-year-old, three-year-old daughter and herself to the very people group that killed her husband, that she too might share that gospel with that people to give what we cannot keep, to gain what we cannot lose. This is what it means to follow our king, who gave his very life to win victory and salvation and peace and justice and righteousness, forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, and rose to again to life and now is now seated at God's right hand. The rulers and authorities, they're disarmed, they're allowed to, rule, uh, to work for a little while longer in this now but not yet time. But why is that time here? Why has God left this now but not yet time? Why has he defeated the enemy but allowed it all to continue? Why? For no other reason than the gospel might go out to the nations. For no other reason that people might come to repentance before that day when Jesus returns. And so we, brothers and sisters, live in this life. Beholding a king and following a king and living in light of his model and example As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he left us this example that we might follow in it. Where we forego the self, where we let these, as Paul would put it, these light and momentary troubles, we go through them for the sake of others that they might know Jesus too. For the sake of others, that they might have this king too, experience that victory, experience that peace, that righteousness. That they too may have the hope of glory that we have in the age to come. Father in heaven, so give us to behold Jesus our King, Victor, the one who gives righteousness. So give us to behold the pattern that he set, first suffering, then glory fill us with such hope of the age to come, such expectation of the glory that is then, that as the Apostle Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time would not be worth comparing with the glory that is to come. So strengthen our feeble knees and our weak hearts, we pray, by your powerful and mighty spirit, that we in this life may forego the self, that we might see others, Come into that kingdom. And we pray these things for Jesus' glory and in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching hosted here at Comforting Close Reading. If you're looking for other resources, you can head over to our main site, scriptorium.net.au. If you have any questions, our email address is right at scriptorium.net.au.